Hello and welcome to this uh, new podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. Today, we will be talking about new methods in public health. Of course, we talk a lot about policy, about applications and intervention, and how we can make the world better in terms of public health. But we also need methods. And I know those are sometimes technically difficult to understand, but there are indications and we need to know them in order to know when they are indicated and when they should be applied. And I'm really uh, lucky because uh, in our January issue uh, of the journal, uh, editor Roger Vaughan invited uh, uh, Bibhat Chakraborty, the Nick Seawold, to comment on two new methods. One is the sequential multiple assignment randomized trial, and the other one is the micro randomized trial. So we'll discuss them. And they are important, really great development in public health. You should be aware of them. So let me introduce my guests. So I will have first uh, uh, Dr. Bibhash Chakraborty. He's uh, an associate professor at uh, Duke and National University of Singapore a Center for Quantitative uh, Studies. He's in Singapore now. and. Uh, Good good morning, uh, Bibhas. Or maybe it's the afternoon for you. For us, it's the morning here. How are you doing? It's pretty good. It's actually night, 10 o'clock. <laughs> I see. I see. <laughs> so, anyway, so it's great to be here. Okay. Uh, I look forward to the conversation. All right. Thank you, Bibhas. And then uh, we have uh, Nick Siwal who is a postdoctoral fellow at uh, the Johns Hopkins uh, University. Hi, Nick. How are you doing? Good morning. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Great. So let's, let's go straight into our conversation. I, I would like to know, why are the current, you know, which I would say a traditional randomized trial, not good enough for what you want to do? Tell me, what are the current limitations that you want to overcome? Okay, so I would like to start by posing some questions for public health investigators. And hopefully those questions uh, will get somewhere with our answers, okay? So my first question is, what would you do as an ethical, responsible trialist investigator when the randomly allocated interventions does not work for some of the participants, what would you do for the so-called oddly non-responders or partial responders? Would you just let them fail and drop out of the study? And if so, then how are we even hoping to achieve any sort of equity among the trial participants? Right? So that's my first question. And the second question is, if we just... Let, let's, let's address the first okay. one, Bibhat. Okay. I, I think, okay. I think the, this right. one is, is already a good one. So okay. Nick, do you, do you want to answer? Yeah, I can, I can give it a shot. So, you know, I think, <laughs> I think something that is important to think about when we are designing trials, but more specifically when we're designing interventions is that we know that the same thing won't work for everybody. 
um, we know that some folks are just going to have a different response to an intervention or, or some, you know, uh, uh, units that we're intervening on are just going to maybe not respond. And so I think a question that we need to think about when we're talking about intervention development is, is that important to us? Um, is it important that uh, we can address the needs of a variety of, of individuals, including those who might not respond to this treatment that we're trying? And then what do we do in that situation? And that is more of a scientific question than a methods question. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I would answer even, you know, uh, because I would say, I would analyze the data as randomized, you know, so in order to have some uh, decent inference, uh, if people don't uh, uh, take uh, the, the intervention, uh, they would still be counted as if they had it. And uh, I, I know that would be a problem, but for me, that's the theory. We analyze as randomized. Right, right. Um, so, you know, we had avoided, I, I would argue that we had kind of avoided this issue head on and then, you know, trying to fix things by, you know, this additional analysis, ITT principles, intention to treat, et cetera, right? But what if we can do something by design, right? That's where we will be heading towards. And then my other question is that why our study design must be intervention A versus intervention B, while when we look in real life practice, then the interventions are often you know, adaptive and sequential in nature. Typically like, oh, you give A followed by B, there is not enough response, otherwise you give C and so on, right? So if the practice is like that, why is such a gap between the practice, clinical or public health, whatever it is, Whatever the practice is, it, it seems to be disconnected to how we formulate our trial designs. Okay, yeah, you, need, you 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 start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a real. I, I think that's the crux of the issue in in some sense, right? I have never really engaged with uh, a, a you know a doctor, for instance, or a, a a public health practitioner who's not thinking about what do I do next, or you know I'm going to in real life I'm going to kind of watch what happens and I'm going to adapt to you know how the world is changing around me. I think we've seen that fairly significantly in the past few years with COVID. Right, we've had to really think on our feet, um, and so it is. It, you know I. I think your initial framing of the question was why are existing methods like not good enough? And I, I would push back and I would say that they are good, but they're good for a specific set of questions. Um, and so if we're able to sort of shift our thinking and, and move into a framework where we know a priori that we are going to change how we're doing things, we are going to kind of watch and, and, and adapt to how you know, response to an intervention is unfolding, then why can't we look at that and build an evidence base around that uh, scientifically rather than looking at things sort of just in situ? Great. And, and I, will, I will, you know, I will also give, you know, the really basic uh, uh, kind of response. I would say, you know, I, I count on randomization to give me two comparable groups. So now if I start to shifting people from one intervention or the other, 
I'm destroying that uh, equilibrium created by randomization. So I would hesitate. If I have a new intervention, I would re-randomize in order to make sure I have uh, a comparable group. That would be the reason why I would not change things after randomization. Yeah, I think that's a great point, right? Like yeah, once, you, once you have your two randomized groups, um, you don't want to allow crossover necessarily, right? You, you don't want to let folks from one arm kind of move into, into the other, except if you're doing it in a principled way that's motivated by a scientific question, right? So maybe I want to see what happens when I start people on, on treatment A for you know, six weeks and then switch them. You know, maybe I, I want to see what's happening here. So if we can do this in a principled way, we're not necessarily destroying the benefits of randomization. We're actually reaping benefits of randomization because we can now see what's happening in a more sequential way and, and in a way that mimics clinical practice a bit better. Absolutely. So what are the answers? You give it, tell us more about uh, the alternatives. Uh, yeah, so I mean, that's uh, th th these are the motivations primarily, I would say, to go towards these newer methodologies, more sequentially randomized trials. And in particular, we talk about, in, in basically, we have two papers. One talks about the sequential multiple assignment randomized trial, or SMART, as an acronym. And uh, the second one is micro-randomized trial, MRT. So that's where we are heading, but I guess we will start first with SMART. Uh, what does it do? It, it basically helps you address these sequential intervention questions, um, as Nick pointed out, you know, in a principled way, right? Uh, so if we have these interventions at, uh, as in a sequence, can we then look at them from investigate them from separate randomized trials of standalone interventions, A versus B, and then maybe in a different stage, C versus D, and then stitch together uh, interventions from these different trials. So Bibhash, to make sure yeah. everybody follows, give me an example, what would be A, what would be B? Right, so uh, I have an example from depression management, okay? I guess depression is a big issue in, in the in United States, so I guess people would understand this. So uh, a standalone comparison between, say, cognitive behavioral therapy and a common antidepressant drug, citalopram, that would be a very, uh, you know, uh, preliminary comparison, right? You know, this is a very common comparison that people might be interested in. But is it the end goal, you know, just A versus B, right? This CBT versus citalopram. Often not because this is a chronic condition and you have to, you have to give people intervention over a long period of time, sometimes adapting the treatment type, sometimes adapting the dosage and so on, right? So you can do this initial comparison between these two in a standard RCT. And then maybe the follow-on treatments you can compare in a separate RCT, and then you may want to combine across these to find the optimal sequence of intervention about how to manage them over a long period of time about their depression, depressive condition. But um, 
if you do it that way, I mean, you certainly can combine across multiple interventions. But if you do it that way, you might miss some of the synergistic effects between initial intervention and subsequent intervention. That's a crucial issue here. So for example, I'd argue in this example that CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, because it's behavioral, it works on cognition and behavior. It helps people to better comply to their subsequent interventions, which would eventually lead to their long-term outcome. And com this is co in comparison to any sequence of intervention that might start with a common antidepressant drug initially, but after a while, you know, it may not have that kind of sustained effect. So that's when studying all these interventions in sequence in a principled way, principled randomized way makes sense. And that's where the classical RCT cannot capture those synergies. And that's where SMART can help. Got it. So Nick, what, 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 what does Bibhash mean by principle? I think... When I use the word principled, and when I think Vibash is using the word principled, is is to to mean, in some sense, by design. Um, we're building this notion that we we want to capture synergistic effects between these treatments because we know that they're not working in a vacuum, right? And so, if we can watch what's happening with the behavioral therapy and citalopram together, sort of in the sequence within the same person. Um, and we're doing this in a way that that we have designed the trial to look at this. I think that's sort of what's meant by principled there is we're thinking about this in advance. We're identifying the fact that we want to look at these sequences. And so we're designing a study that lets us look at these sequences while also, like you mentioned earlier, sort of maintaining randomization um, and sort of the nice statistical features that you get out of a randomized trial. And so and so both the, the the behavioral intervention and the treatment would have more than additive effects or something like that. Given one after the other one, we would have more than if they were given independently. So uh, are there examples of public health intervention that could correspond to this more clinical type of intervention? I think Bibash has two excellent examples in his paper. <laughs> yes, go on, go on, Nick. Yeah. I'll let you talk. It's your paper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, we talked in the paper. We talked about two examples. One is about vaccination, um, uh, vaccination for COVID nineteen, and uh, so the initial intervention was some digital uh, intervention, basically messaging to. Uh, promote vaccination, and then there's a follow-up about you know if they are still if after um, yeah I forgot the exact time length after after a while if they are still not vaccinated then a follow-on message to address any concern they might have so it's a more tailored intervention after all so that helps you you know uh, achieve greater vaccination overall in the population uh, longer term so that's one example and then the second example is uh, a malaria uh, intervention trial uh, in the context of Africa. And again, there, uh, this, this is actually interesting because this is a community-based intervention trial. It's a cluster randomized trial and where uh, you know, some uh, localities, villages 
are intervened and uh, there are there are follow on interventions uh, from the initial stage of malaria control to the second stage of malaria control and there can be synergies by following these um, sequences Got so it. yeah those would be the parallels yeah yeah uh, those are great uh, public health examples then so do you want to add something nick or we move to the micro randomized trial i think i think the the one thing that i'll add is just that it is i believe very important to be thinking about what's going to happen to the folks who bivash called earlier the sort of you know the 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 very hard the challenging non-responders right what um, we know, like I said before, we know that not everything works for everybody. And so if we can start thinking about doing science in a way that mimics clinical practice and that mimics public health practice, where we are adapting to things as, as sort of they come at us. And if we can learn about this, then we really have the chance to improve equity for a lot of folks, right? Because we can adapt treatment and we can, we can reach a larger group of people than if we just looked at, you know, a single intervention by itself against uh, control. Say. I, I totally agree. I would say it's a huge problem. It's not a small problem. It's a huge problem because uh, we all know of situation where, uh, you know, trials had huge dropout and crossover and, and were analyzed as, you know, by intention to treat and the results were totally contradictory to what I expected. You know, I, I still remember the controversy about AZT and, and AIDS, you know, in which people were taking the drugs, even if randomized to the placebo, and there were all those discussions. We would have benefited so much to have those new techniques in the 1980s and after. It's not a small, it's a huge problem in public health. And so those techniques can really become the rule rather than, uh, than the exception. So, so Mimad, what about those micro-randomized? What, what's the difference? Yeah, so there is some difference, but before we jump into micro-randomized trials, yeah. maybe we have to sure. step back a little bit and define uh, you know, what are the interventions there, right? So let's talk about just-in-time adaptive interventions or GTIs. So these GTIs are a special kind of adaptive interventions that we have been talking about so far. And uh, these GTIs aim to provide the right kind of intervention to the right people at the right time. That's the additional thing, just in time when they need it. So for example, suppose your smartwatch detects that you are sitting for too long, right? Then a GTI can remind and motivate you to go for a walk. Right? That's a GTI. And, uh, you know, there are many other examples uh, in health behavior promotion, for example, smoking cessation or reduction of alcohol use, etc. So you can think of GTIs to help people, you know, uh, get out of these unhealthy behaviors or get into healthy, healthy behaviors. Yeah, but then Bibhas, this could be a cohort study. I mean, it doesn't need to be a randomized trial. So how does the just-in-time reminders fit into a randomized trial? That, that's what I'm not following. Right. So um, these, um, yes, this can be studied through, um, uh, through regular observational cohort studies 
but if you want to really estimate the causal effects of these you know um, different kind of behavioral nudges or you know other other jitais the component these are multi component interventions this could be different um, combination of messages uh, the timing itself could be a component of message. so you have to investigate all these different intervention components and you have to find the causal effect of these and disentangle from each other right so yeah. for that you need randomization yeah. and that's what we do many times you know in the micro randomization that's what the name is in micro randomization you randomize people again and again to these different uh, intervention components over a long period and it could be hundreds hundreds of randomization potentially so nick i mean how does this help i mean uh, where do you see applications of micro randomized trials in yeah. public health i mean absolutely so i think first of all let me just add a little bit to your question about why why randomized and uh, you know of course. i think um like Bibash said, these are really multi-component interventions. I have never met anybody who says this is when this is exactly the context in which somebody needs to receive a ping to remind them to engage in a particular behavior. And this is what the content of the message needs to say and all of this stuff, right? So once you have that kind of nice and packaged, that's something that you can look at in a cohort study or just a two-arm randomized trial with your sort of packaged just-in-time adaptive intervention versus something less tailored, for instance. Um, the the micro-randomization helps us answer those little questions about, you know, when should we ping, for instance? When, what are the contexts in which this is useful? Um, and like Bibash mentioned, this can be used in a lot of places. So the first ever micro-randomized trial um, was in physical activity promotion for uh, sedentary adults. So the idea was that, you know, we, we wanted folks to be able to get up and move around a bit more. We know that sitting long periods of time is associated with poorer health outcomes. And so if we can get them up and moving at various times during the day, uh, that would be good, right? So the idea was we would just randomly, uh, uh, up to five times a day, just send a little message to their smartphone and say, hey, we've noticed that you haven't gone for a walk in a while, or you can do it contextually tailored. So, hey, it's a beautiful day outside. It's 75 and sunny. Um, why don't you go walk to the coffee shop uh, or go walk to get lunch? And so, and then we can watch and see how their step count changes in a, some proximal uh, period right after that brief intervention. Um, so, MRTs and just-in-time adaptive interventions are really useful when you're thinking about, at least in my perspective, when you're thinking about sort of a nudge, right? A, just a, a small intervention that is going to have a short-term effect, but that you can you might want to do repeatedly and in different contexts in order to, say, over a long run, optimize or improve some sort of health behavior. Uh, that's great. So, so Bibhash, for example, you know, one group will will get the type of intervention Nick just described. You know, just stop being at your computer, go and walk. It's nine a.m. It's sunny outside. Okay, and we're work, working from home now, so no problem. We can do it. But yeah. uh, what would the other group get? Nothing. <laughs> okay, so I think um, we have to be careful about how we frame this. So there are two different kinds of trials in general. 
one could be uh, developmental trials and one could be confirmatory trials. The question that you are asking is confirmatory trial. So you have one group where you have the package finalized optimized intervention, and then the other one is, is your traditional control, let's say. But here we are not even there. So this, this confirmatory trial is in the future. Micro-randomization can happen before then. It could be just one arm if you like. And then within that arm, there could be many uh, these micro-randomizations to find out what is my optimal packages. Only then I can move to a regular RCT for evaluation confirmation. Does yeah, that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, I, Nick, do you still feel that the randomization is respected when uh, you start moving the intervention in one group and not in the other? Yeah, so you, you, here this is a question of what's your outcome? What are you actually interested in? And so with a micro-randomized trial and with just-in-time adaptive interventions, maybe a little bit more specifically, oftentimes we are just looking for a small behavior change or some, some small impact in, say, the 30 minutes after we've delivered this intervention. And so what's happening is each participant in this trial is randomized, uh, say, five times a day, right? Each, each of these intervention points, each of these randomizations, we have one group that doesn't receive an intervention or that receives a different type of intervention and one that does. But the same person can sort of cross over multiple times. But because we're looking at something like a, a short window right after that randomization in the outcome, the randomization you know, is respected in the sense that we, at every time point, we sort of have two clear groups. We have a treated group and an untreated group. We're just looking then over, you know, potentially hundreds of, of these comparisons. Pibash, uh, maybe I'm missing some detail here, but. No, 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 you're, you're doing great. So, <laughs> so, but, you know, just to add to that point, right? So uh, if you send this ping, this notification, you don't expect that the effect of that particular notification will linger for another day. Right. So that's a very short term effect. So that's why we do not fear about contamination, what they would get in the next uh, time point. Right. Uh, so there is no uh, crossover, so to speak, in these kind of trials. I, I absolutely love it. I, I mean, I think it's brilliant. I think uh, uh, we feel like we can breathe with those very, you know, rigid trials, which all of a sudden they get some flexibility. And uh, wow, that's that's really a major uh, breakthrough. So we have a few minutes left. Uh, I, I would like to give each of you the opportunity to to try to summarize, you know, where what you think is the future of those new methods and how they will be applied and 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 what comes next. Uh, so, uh, Nick, start, please. Great. Yes. So my, the, I think the the key takeaway here is that. Um, the scientific question should drive the trial design and, and the, the context of your science is what is driving your study design and not the other way around. So Bibash and I have spent, you know, we've, we've had this lovely conversation about two particular methods in, in trial design, um, but it's important that folks aren't trying to cram their science into this trial design, into a SMART or an MRT, 
just to do it sort of because, you know, I've, I've heard people say like, oh, these are really like the novelty here is the trial design. And I always try to push back on that when I'm collaborating with people because the novelty is your science and the trial design is sort of the tool that we're using to answer your scientific questions. Um, and so if you do have questions about adaptive interventions, sort of sequences of, of treatments that can adapt to a unit over time, that's a great motivator to look at a SMART. If you do have questions about building a just-in-time adaptive intervention, um, oftentimes these are in like a mobile health context, that's a great motivator to look at an MRT. If you are kind of doing science that is still A versus B, and that's, you know, an appropriate scientific question to ask, for instance, in a confirmatory trial that, that Bosch talked about, that's a great trial design. Um, it's very clean, right? A, a two-group comparison is sort of the easiest thing you can do. Um, and it answers the question in a really elegant way. So that's the, that's the takeaway here for me. I think in the future, what I would like to see is a little bit more movement or blending between these optimization designs, like a SMART or an MRT have both traditionally been thought of as sort of developmental or optimization trials, um, and try to move that a little bit more into the confirmatory space as well to see if we can you know, maybe we can run a SMART and we can get a fairly good answer and we don't need to run a follow-up RCT. Um, because ideally with a SMART, you would take out your sort of optimal adaptive intervention at the end and you would run it in a confirmatory study. And to my knowledge, nobody has ever done that. Um, so I, I am unaware of people running an, uh, an adaptive intervention versus standard control in just a two-arm trial. So if we can kind of blend some of these methods... Thank you.